Great to see you here at the EU public meeting. Uh, I know there's many people who are just starting out at university this year, which is exciting. Um, so I thought, just as a sort of a bit of interaction with each other, uh, many of you might have been here for Welcome Festival last week, or maybe if you're an old-time student, you remember those days when you used to come to Welcome Festival. I'm sort of interested in whether people actually join clubs and societies anymore. I mean, you've come along to an EU public meeting, so there's some level at which we can assume that you've at least made some contact with the EU. But what about other clubs and societies? Why don't you have a little just chat to the person next to you? What clubs and societies did you sign up for last week? Or what clubs and societies do you remember signing up for that you never really did anything with? <laughs> so the chance to share some just wisdom and experiences with one another. Okay, you've got about 30 seconds just to chat. I'd just be interested to know. be a dampener on any new student enthusiasm and I hope you sign up for lots of clubs and societies. It's a great way to meet people at university. It's a great way to leverage all the free time that you have when you're a university student. I don't want to put a dampener on it, but I would be interested just to know any examples of clubs and societies that other people signed up for and just basically never did anything much with. Any examples of clubs you signed up for back in the day when you first arrived on campus? Go on, be bold. Give us an answer. The Society for Creative Anachronism, that's the one where they dress up and pretend they do uh, like a knights or, yeah, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah? The Bushwalkers. The Bushwalkers, what a great saying, because it sounds like so, such a great idea. I'd love to get into more bushwalking while I'm at university. And it never happens. <laughs> such a shame. I mean, yeah, yeah. Any others? The Chocolate Society. You joined up the Chocolate Society and didn't leverage that at all. And they took your money, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they ate your money, actually, is what they did. They ate your money. University is just such a wonderful privilege to be at university. It is such a great experience. And those who've been around for a while, I hope, can testify to that. It is also an opportunity, really, for new beginnings. We've got a new year. Maybe you've just landed at Sydney University for the first time. Maybe you were doing a gap year last year. Maybe you were at school. Maybe you're a mature age student. Maybe you've just arrived for the first time. This is a new beginning for you, a new chapter in your life. That's quite exciting. Who knows what it will hold? You sort of hope that it won't be exactly the same as whatever's come before. You're here for something new. Obviously, there'll be continuities between, like, you're not, I hope, going to be an entirely new person, but it's a new beginning. Even if you're here for the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh year in a row, a new year represents the potential for new beginnings. And here we are, week one, new year. What new beginnings might this year hold for you under the one true living God? Who knows? I guess we'll find out as the year progresses. One of the things about new beginnings is it's actually an opportunity to recraft your identity. And maybe if you've just landed at Sydney University this year, you've been aware of that. Going, well, no one really knows me from before. Going to meet a whole bunch of new people. Maybe I wasn't entirely happy with sort of who I'd become, who I was known as. Here's an opportunity to forge a new identity, potentially. Uh, it was a long time ago, but the experience is still the same. I remember arriving at the University of Sydney, first year engineering student, uh, electrical engineering. There was no one else in my course who I knew. 
90 of us, all, new, all brand new, and I just thought, I can be anyone I want. I could choose to be anyone I want at this point. What identity will I choose to craft for myself? You remember playing Mi Minecraft? <laughs> you remember back in the day? Yes, th there's not a male in the room who's going, no. Um, but, but, but many, many of, um, many of the women here I know are also going, well, I'm not going to admit that I, I had a go. You know, there was that six months where I tried it. Um, uh, in Minecraft, you know what that is? Come on, someone say. It's a crafting table, that's right. And in Minecraft, what you do when you come to a crafting table is, that's where you make stuff. You take certain ingredients, and you put them together and you create something new, right? And really, your opportunity at university each year, really, is to craft yourself potentially a new identity. The sort of things you're grabbing onto are like, what very degree are you doing? That's a part of who you are, right? A part, well, certainly, you might not feel it's fair, but it's certainly how people are gonna probably categorize you, right? I was chatting with Alex earlier today and just law students are, well, we all know what law students are, don't we? We just have that box. We just go, well, that's what you are. Whether or not it's right or fair, we just go, that's who you The degree you're doing is one of those ingredients, right, in terms of crafting your identity. You might fight against it, fair enough, but that's how people are going to perceive you. Your degree, your look, and I know there's many blokes maybe in the room who are probably going, my look, I never, do I have a look? <laughs> you do, you have a look. Um, but you, you choose your look. What you're gonna wear? What accessories you hold? What cover you put on your phone? What bag you carry? What your drink bottle is like? All of those things are part of the look, right? Now you're set free from the shackles of school uniforms. Who are you going to be? And you start to craft your identity, your degree, your look. Where are you going to hang out on campus? Fisher Library. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the, the, uh, the seats outside Fisher Library. You can tell the first years. They're the only people who sit there because they haven't worked out, that's not where to hang out. <laughs> that's where I hung out, okay? <laughs> um, where are you gonna hang out? You're gonna hang out at Herman's? You're gonna hang out at Manning? Well, now that it's closed, I mean, what's the point? Uh, where are you, that's part of you crafting your identity this year, right? Where are you gonna hang out on those spare hours? What about the clubs and societies that you join? What about where you're gonna sit in class? That's part of your identity, right? You're gonna sit down the front, diligent, you and the mature age students. <laughs> That's because they're old. They can't hear or see if they don't sit at the front. It's not because they're eager, they're just old. I can say that I'm, anyway. Um, or you're gonna sit at the back, like all the engineers do in every lecture they go to, they sit right at the back just so that they can sort of be distant from everything and just you're not involved and pretend that they don't care, but actually they go home and they listen to the lecture again on half speed and they're down, down. Like, what's the look, what's, what's this whole image you're trying to build for yourself? Where you sit in class, who you hang out with, 
What is going to be your identity this year? Now, you might not have even thought about it very clearly at the forefront of your mind, but I would suggest to you that at least subconsciously, you're already working on that project. We all are. We do it all the time to craft an identity for ourselves. The, the problem with that, the challenge with that, is that whatever identity we build for ourselves is ultimately fragile. The identity that you seek to craft for yourself is fragile in the face of the rest of reality, the rest of circumstances and life. Because you can't control all those other things in life that will dismantle or blow down or just shatter that identity you've crafted for yourself. You've put all that energy into being the very diligent student, but then you get chronic fatigue in fourth year and it all, goes out the, out, all just goes out the window. You've decided to be the really popular person and you put lots of, join lots of clubs and sides, lived up you know, the social life at university as much as you can. But you know what? Your friends just decide that actually they don't want to be your friend anymore. You can't control it. These identities we seek to build for ourselves are ultimately fragile because they're built on our own efforts and it's our lack of ability to control everything else that means that they won't necessarily be secure, not in the long term. What the Christian gospel message offers everybody, what Jesus offers everybody, is the opportunity for a genuinely secure identity. A genuinely secure identity, which means it will not be shattered by anything else that goes on in your life. What Jesus offers is an eternally secure identity. That means that whatever life throws at you, who you are will not be affected. It will not be disintegrated. What does he offer you? What sort of identity? He offers you the opportunity to be adopted into his family, to become a brother or sister with him, with the same one true living God as a loving father. He offers you adoption into a secure family. He offers you eternal love, not fickle love, not conditional love, eternal love. What does he offer you? He offers you forgiveness for those things that you just wished you'd never done but can't change. He offers you genuine, divine forgiveness. What does he offer you? He offers you real freedom. Freedom from the shackles of trying to craft your own identity. Freedom from slavery to all the things that the world tells you you have to really, really care about. What does he offer you? He offers you an identity that will last forever. This is what the Christian gospel, the good news of Jesus, is to the world, to this university. You can stop your crafting because he wants to give you an identity, a secure identity.
Now, I think that sounds pretty good. I think that's what the Bible teaches us about the Lord Jesus. But there's a problem, potentially. You might hear that and go, well, yes, that sounds good. But the reality is the people who I know who are Christians, they're, they're not necessarily nice people. They're not necessarily the best of people, even if they've got this identity from Jesus. They are indeed hypocrites. Um, Christianity has a hypocrisy problem. This is not a secret. This is well known. In fact, you've just got to look at all the stuff that's been going on, just in, even in Australia, news over the last, what, 18 months, two years. The Royal Commission into Institutional um, Child Abuse and just how the churches were some of the lead organisations brought to sort of upfront and exposed in that. How can the church, how can, how can Jesus' community be involved in abuse of children? What does that even then mean for being a Christian? In fact, many would say that sort of hypocrisy apparent within the Christian community would, would be the best evidence that Christianity is fake, that Christianity is not worth the time of day. Uh, a big survey was done or three years ago now about faith and belief across Australia, done by a, an organisation called McCrindle. They produced this report. You can just find this report on the internet and look it up. Here's one stat. The respondents were asked, 1, uh, sorry, 1,024 respondents, when you think about Christians and Christianity, to what extent do the following negatively influence your perceptions? And they had a whole list of different sort of things. One of them that they asked was about hypocrisy, Christians not practicing what they preach. To what extent then does this influence how you think about Christians? And you notice there, 41% of the respondents said this has a massive negative influence, hypocrisy, and then another 24%, it is a very significant negative influence. Put those two together, that's 65%. 65%. So basically two thirds of people in Australia respond by saying hypocrisy amongst Christians has a significant or massive influence on how I think about Christianity. Christianity has a hypocrisy problem. Further, when they asked more in the survey, they said, what are the top five behavior blockers? That is behaviors that are most likely to prevent a non-believer who says that they're open to change from exploring Christianity. What's going to stop them actually exploring Christianity? Look at these five things. Church abuse, hypocrisy, religious wars, judging others, and issues around money. I would suggest to you that all five issues are actually forms of hypocrisy. See, because what's church abuse about? That's where Christians are meant to love people, aren't they? Wasn't Jesus the love guy? You're meant to love people, and yet the church is involved in it. That's a form of hypocrisy. When it comes to religious wars, wasn't Jesus a guy of peace? Love your enemy, not kill them in war? It's a form of hypocrisy. Judging others, and yet they know the log in their own eye, as Jesus would say. It's, it's hypocrisy all the way through. I think what this is saying is that hypocrisy is maybe the biggest blocker that Christians have to getting a hearing for Jesus' message amongst the wider world. Christianity has a massive hypocrisy problem. 
So what can we say about this? Well, the first thing to say is this. Jesus himself calls out the hypocrites. In fact, Jesus calls out hypocrites maybe in a, in a more full-on way than you or I would be maybe willing to do. He really lets them have it. He holds nothing back. If you've got a Bible there, if you could turn up to Matthew chapter 23 or maybe look on with the person next to you or just grab your phone and just type in biblegateway.com and that'll just take you to an online Bible site and you can look up Matthew chapter 23. Be helpful if you could just see it, it, maybe share it with the person next to you. Just while you're finding Matthew chapter 23, this is an account written in the Christian New Testament, an account of Jesus' life and teaching an account of his death and his resurrection, one of the four accounts that we have of that in the Christian New Testament. And at this particular point, Jesus is engaged towards the end of his life, just before he's about to die and be put to death. He's engaging with the Jewish religious leaders, right? He's he's engaging with people who are full on for God. They're the religious leaders. They're known as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, two groups of people who together were leading God's people. Now, Jesus has been in conflict with these Jewish religious leaders for quite some time. They actually have decided they need to get rid of him. And here they actually are. This is taking place in the Jewish temple, the center of Jewish life. Jesus is there with these religious leaders and they are trying to trap him, trying to catch him out. And he's been responding to their questions. And now Jesus turns the tables. Now Jesus calls them out for their hypocrisy. So if you've got your Bible there, Matthew chapter 23, look at what Jesus says just at the beginning here. Then Jesus said to the crowds, right, who are around, and to his disciples, his followers, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. These guys are hypocrites. They say one thing, but they do another. What they say is right, but they're not doing it themselves. And yet they're going to lay it on you. And if you then look on through the rest of the chapter, Jesus has seven sort of mini speeches, seven goes. He has like seven points he wants to make. Each one starts with woe. When you say woe to you, that means it's going bad for you, right? It's going to, going to go bad for you. He says it seven times to these teachers of the laws and the Pharisees. Seven times he says it in this chapter. Six times he calls them hypocrites to their faces. So let's just, I'll just point that out to you. If you've got your Bible there in Matthew chapter 23, you can see the first woe there in verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. That is, you're meant to be teaching people about the kingdom of God, but actually you yourself have not done what God asked of you. You yourself have not entered God's kingdom and you're stopping other people doing it as well. And yet you're meant to be the leaders of God's people. You're a bunch of hypocrites. And so it goes on like this. You can see the second woe in verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the Lord and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when they become one, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. 
You travel all over the place trying to find people who will follow you, but because you're not entering, guess what? They don't enter either. You're so zealous to win them to yourself, not to God. You're a bunch of hypocrites. And so he continues on. Verse 16, woe to you blind guides. Just the idea of being a blind guide. Think about it. You come, you work in, come to Welcome Week, Welcome Festival, and there the university has kindly ordered you, uh, organised you some tour guides. Did anyone go on a tour last week? Anyone? I wonder who went on those tours. One person, two, okay, two, go on a tour. Imagine you turn up to the tour, and the tour is somebody who's just wearing a blindfold. And they say, good to have you here. Excellent. Let's, let me show you around. And, and they are what, what is the point of being a blind guide? The very notion, right, has the hypocrisy built into it. That you're trying to guide other people, but you yourself can't see. And his point is, they were, they were blind to spiritual realities, these people. And yet they're, they're meant to be the religious leaders. He continues on. Then, verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These religious leaders were trying to keep all the Old Testament Jewish laws where you said you meant to tithe, give a tenth. And they were very diligently cutting a tenth of their dill growing there or their coriander or their basil out of their little pot. They're cutting a tenth off and giving that to the temple. Very, very good. I mean, the height of religious practice. They just... They just had stopped caring about justice. They just stopped caring about mercy. You can see what Jesus is saying. You're worrying about these tiny little parts of the law and yet the big weighty matters, you're just, they were hypocrites. And so Jesus continues on. You can chase it through the seven, through the rest of the chapter. I'm going to jump down to verse 27 because I think this one's particularly helpful for us. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead people's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. They look good. They say the right things. But on the inside, their heart their heart wasn't for God. Their heart was for themselves. How can you see this? Well, if you go back earlier in the chapter, Jesus points this out. If you go to verses 5 and 7, he says, everything they do is done for people to see. And he talks about how they wear their Jewish sort of um, regalia to make it very visible. They have these boxes on their arms and their forehead that contain little bits of God's word and he said they make them big so people can see them and they, they have lots of tassels on the end of their to, they're doing everything for show because who do they want approval from? Their heart isn't for God they're looking for approval from other people what's the outcome as Jesus calls out these hypocrites? Well you can see it towards the end of the chapter verse 33 you snakes says Jesus you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? The place of God's wrath. These leaders of God's people, he says, how are you going to escape facing God's wrath and anger against your hypocrisy? 
This is the reality. Jesus calls out the hypocrites. So when we see all the hypocrisy even now lived out amongst God's people in the church, we know what Jesus thinks. He calls out the hypocrites. He calls them to account. He will not tolerate it. Jesus is not silent. Jesus exposes it. We can say a bit more about this too, though. There's Jesus and the reality of hypocrites. If you read through Mark's account of Jesus' teaching, what you can see is that Jesus multiple times addresses this problem of what's going on inside God's people. One of the things he says, if you go to earlier in Matthew's gospel, if you go, you can look it up later to Matthew chapter 13. Jesus says that within God's people, when you look at the church, you are always going to find both weeds and wheat. He's using a farming analogy there. He's not, you imagine a, a paddock that's got both wheat and weeds in it. And he says, within God's church, you're always going to have the people who genuinely have a heart for God, the wheat, but you're always going to have people who call themselves Christians, who call themselves followers of Jesus, but you know what? He says, they're weeds. And you know what you do to weeds? When harvest time comes, you gather them all up, you separate the wheat from the weeds and the weeds get burnt up. They suffer the judgment of God. Jesus is saying the reality is that within God's people here on earth, you will always have both wheat and weeds. There will be people who call themselves Christian, but who are not actually people who have a heart for God. They're not actually genuine followers of Jesus. What that means is we will never escape this side of Jesus' return, some hypocrisy happening in the, quote, church. Because not everyone in the, quote, church is actually a follower of Jesus. Turning up to church, wearing an EU green shirt, going to a Bible study, being involved in a youth group, going on a Christian aid mission, none of those things actually make you a Christian. You could do all of those things and still not have a heart for God. There will always be both wheat and weeds within God's people at this time. And the third thing to say is that Jesus offers healing for the hypocrites. You can see this uh, if you look elsewhere in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, talking about his own work of coming to help people. He's saying, I have not come for those who are already righteous. I've not come for those who are living such a great life. He says, I've come to help the sick, those who actually are stuck in their hypocrisy. And the reality is, I don't, I don't, want, to be, I don't want to be harsh, but if we actually all think about our own lives, even against our own standards that we would like to uphold, there are so many times where we fail to live up to even our own standards let alone the standards of the one true living God. We are all in the place of sickness. We all need the doctor. We all need Dr. Jesus to deal with our hypocrisy. How does Jesus do that? Well, you need to keep exploring what Jesus does in the rest of Gospel of Mark uh, Matthew as it explores exactly who Jesus is and what he's done. But here's three things just to, talk, to walk away and maybe talk about with. 
Think about what Jesus does for the hypocrites. Ultimately, Jesus is the one who, who experiences his father's just wrath against hypocrisy. All of the anger of the one true living God against hypocrisy, Jesus absorbs himself in his own death on the cross so that the hypocrites, like you and me, can be forgiven. What's more, he then comes to life again, he's raised new life so that we can share in a new life. We can have a new start, a new beginning, so that we can have a new identity sourced in him and not in our own hypocritical efforts. You might think about what Jesus does in the hypocrites. The teaching of the New Testament is that actually Jesus doesn't just die for the hypocrites and doesn't just rise to life for them, but he actually pours out his spirit into people so that they might experience a new beginning, so that they might start to live a changed life. And the final thing you might think about is what Jesus then promises the hypocrites, that one day when he returns, there will be a new creation. There will be no more lying, deceitfulness, no more hypocrisy. There will only be truth, integrity, authenticity, the genuine article, the fulfilment of all that he is working both in us by his spirit and for us in his death and resurrection. That's what he holds out for the hypocrites. This is who Jesus is. Now, I've thrown a lot of stuff out at you today and maybe some of this is brand new to you or maybe you've heard some of it before. Either way, I want to encourage you to do a couple of things. First of all, why not come back again next week as we explore a different aspect of the person of Jesus when we're going to be particularly thinking about Jesus as fact, Jesus as the one who is beyond just fiction. He's the one who you can actually know for certain the historical basis for who he is and what he has done. We've got some special guest speakers coming to talk about that who are trained in history and well, well regarded. It'd be great for you to come and maybe hear that next week. Secondly, if you've got questions about what we've talked about today about Jesus and the hypocrites, we're holding a, a special Q&A session on Friday at one o'clock and uh, we'd love to, you to come along to that. And um, you can find information about that on the EU website about where that will be as we try to negotiate with the university and lock, lock in rooms for that. But that'll be on Fridays at one. If you're around, why not come along and we'll just do a Q&A over the, some of the things we've talked about today. Or thirdly, we are doing a Who is Jesus course over the next couple of weeks. And if you'd like to explore more about who Jesus is just over the next three weeks, why don't you also come and speak to Alex down the front or me, and we'd love to try to tie you in with that course that's running over the next three weeks. It runs every hour of the week, so whatever hour you're available, we'd love to see you then.